everybody, St. Paul here. I can't wait for you to hear this next interview. Will Lee is next on Music on the Run. Before we get started here, do me a favor. Wherever you got this podcast, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, and if you have time and like what you're hearing, make sure you write a review. It really helps us get the word out so we can have a lot more people coming to the party. Hey, everybody. I'm St. Paul Peterson. Prince gave me that nickname, and I've been lucky enough to tour with people like the Steve Miller Band, Kenny Loggins, Peter Frampton, Donnie Osmond, to name a few. And when I'm not playing music, I love to run. And this is a podcast about how we stay healthy on the road, physically, mentally, and with our families. Welcome to Music on the Run. Hey everybody, St. Paul Peterson here. Welcome to episode 43 of Music on the Run. Man, I can't believe we're up to 43. A couple of updates for you. I'm training for the Urban Half Marathon. Finally went into double digits this last weekend. I got my first 10-miler. Yeah, I'm admitting it. I'm a little behind. It happens. But I made it to 10 miles. It doesn't mean that I didn't lay down on the couch immediately afterwards and take an hour nap and go to bed at about 8.30 p.m., but that's just how it happens. And that's how we roll getting ready for a half a marathon. But it was, it was a great run, and I'm happy to say that uh, I'm going to be able to make it. And that's the most important thing. Finish it. That's what I'm saying. I want to introduce a new segment called the Gratitude Segment and you know, give a little shout out to the people who have financially supported Music on the Run. They're called patrons. Uh, they go to a website called patreon.com forward slash Music on the Run podcast. And they, for quite a long time now, since we've been rolling, have uh, given $10 a month or have uh, done a yearly subscription and helped us put this program on. So I'm going to make this part of our podcast from here on out. I want to do a little shout out to a couple of people today. Thank you so much to Paul Peterson. Yeah, not me. The other Paul Peterson with a D. He's a great supporter of Music on the Run, and I want to say thank you to Paul. And also Jeff Horseman. Uh, he has been such a supporter of everything that I've been doing, whether it's uh, raising money for charity or the Music on the Run podcast, uh, making records, whatever it is, he's always there and it is always supportive. So thank you to you, Jeff. Thank you to you, Paul. Let's get into the program. Are you ready? My guest today is a part of music history. He's played on more hit records than I could ever list here. He was in the CBS Orchestra, the world's most dangerous band, with David Letterman for 33 years. He's one of the most respected musicians and most recognizable bass players in the world. Please welcome my guest, Uncle Will Lee. Hey, Uncle. You're amazing. That's amazing. There you are. That's amazing to hear all that. I, you know, until you let me know that there are all these sponsors, I thought this was a freebie. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> You're gonna get your five bucks in about, you know, ten years. It's gonna grow interest though. Between now and then, or starting then? Well, I think it starts now, and then we'll we'll pay off dividends oh. in about twenty thirty five. That's fabulous. Yeah. So I said the most respected musician, one of the world's most respected musicians, and that's the most important thing. How does that make you feel? 
That's so sweet of you to say. I don't care if it's true or not. It just feels <laughs> really good to hear that. You, you paid Doesn't me matter. to say that, but. That's fine. Where, where are we uh, finding you? Where are you at? I'm in the south of France, which is uh, a place I love being. It, it's, uh, it's, it's quiet and it's, it's scenic, picturesque. It's uh, relaxed and it's, 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 a good way, it's a good place for me to actually creatively focus on stuff. So I'm doing a lot of sessions and stuff. I just got through with my five-string bass. Oh, playing. really? <laughs> I know. I, it wasn't about fun, believe me. It was just about getting the job done. <laughs> but uh, if I want to have fun, I go right to the four string. I, I hear you. Every time. Um, you know, but I'm loving, uh, there's this artist that I'm working with now. His name is Eric Ganey, and he's kind of a, he's kind of a, um, I guess you could, in our world, you could, you could call him an anomaly because he's only been writing for like three or four years. Hmm. And the songs he's writing are just unbelievably great. I think Whoa. you're going to hear a lot about, about this guy. How do these people find you? Um, well, a friend of a friend sort of thing. Yeah. Or, a, a, you know, a, maybe not even a friend, just a guy who sort of halfway represent him, represents him in this case, had known me for, you know, I did maybe a session or something like decades ago. And all of yeah. a sudden he said, I got the guy for you and you got to try this. You got to have Will Lee play on this thing. And all of a sudden, like, we're becoming good friends, and he keeps throwing me one song after another, and they're all better than the last. Oh, cool. That's, that's so Amazing. cool. Well, yeah. you and I, mean, I got a chance to play together as well, in, and I think you were in France at that point in time, too. For the were Funk Friday thing. Well, you did Funk Fridays. Not only that, but I played on a song of yours, and the whole Peterson family did that's as right. well. This is a really, that was, I felt like that was a coup. Getting all three of you guys, you, your brother Ricky, your brother Billy, and uh, everybody played so great on the song of mine. And it was just really like, a, you know, when you have brothers that play together, you know, I, I, I guess I can liken it to the Brecker brothers. There's a mm. thing. There's yeah. a vibe. There's, there's a, a lock. There's, there's a, an understanding about, you know, there's a fundamental understanding of groove and music itself that everybody kind of, whether they, whether they verbally talk about it or even agree on in a conversation, they agree on it in their, in their, in their bodies. And you guys sound so great on that song. I knew you'd understand it right away. It's not that complicated of a song, but, but it was fun to hear you guys treat treatment of it. Well, we were so honored to do it. You asked and I'm like, Yes, yes, finally we get to do something together. But it's also been so cool for you to come on and uh, lend a hand with the Funk Fridays. I think you've been on a couple so far, and i got to get you on some more as well. Those are great. When's the next one coming out? Well, we got one coming out every Friday. We're up to 70. At this taping, we're up to 71 now. So, you're, so you don't skip Fridays? You do every Friday? Every Friday, no skipping allowed. I, I've missed. I think I've missed a few lately, just because of not seeing an announcement. You know. Well, yeah. They, I mean, they're out there. I think, you know, with the Facebook uh, algorithms and Instagram algorithms, you never know which ones are going to get pushed and which ones aren't. But we do them religiously every single Friday, and it's been just so great to have you on there. That's great. You write these one-minute pieces that, that are just a blast to play and, you know, not even challenging, just fun. That's all it's supposed to be. 
get a yeah. group of your friends together to play. And they're your friends because I've met a lot of people just through you doing this. It's been isn't great. That, isn't that crazy? You know everybody. And then you well, ask, if you don't know everybody, you'll ask one of us, can you connect me with so-and-so? And then the network just grows. And it's been unbelievable. I mean, your friend Randy Brecker has been on one, and you you hooked me up with Sean Pelton. He's going to come on one in the fall, he said. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be great. There's so much, there's so many people I want to get on that project. And this week I'm working on the Steve Miller band to do one. Now who's left of the, which version of the Steve Miller band are we talking? I'm, I'm actually combining oh. as many as I can. I've, I've asked uh, the Ricky, Billy Paul people to come on, the Kenny Lee Lewis, the Wootens. I'm going to try to get as many humans as I can get. I've, I've asked Gal Gary Malibur. But we'll see. I mean, uh, a lot of people are, don't have a setup at home, so it's, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. Mr. Miller. Say that again? Are you, are we talking about Steve also participating? Well, I hope so. I'm going to give him a phone call and see if he wants to do it. I think he'd be down. He I loves to he'd play. Be down. He loves to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, he's a great guy. You know, I, I remember coming to New York as a young man. You had a, a relationship with my brother, Ricky, and... He introduced me to you, I believe, is the way that worked. But I remember you just opening your arms and and welcoming me and showing me around. And I remember hanging out with you, going to stores that had gadgets. You're a gadget guy. Are you still a gadget guy? I love gadgets. Who doesn't? We need gadgets. We, we need gadgets. I just want to say that, you know, as you know, I'm a gadgeteer. And um, there's one, There's there are two scientific developments in my entire life that have been at the top of that whole gadget food chain. And this is one of them, the iPhone, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. You like that one, huh? This is one of the top two in my life. What's the other one? You know that thing when you go to the beach that you screw into the sand so that the umbrella doesn't blow away in the wind? Yeah. That's the other one. Top two. <laughs> I remember that we used to get anyway. these watches that did everything. I think there were calculators, and this is so long ago, but it was absolutely cutting edge. It was, and now who needs a watch? You got this? That's true. Or the Apple Watch, I guess. Pretty cool. Hey, Unc, when you play, I, I look, you know, of course, I've been watching you, and you're one of my heroes, so it's just fun to be able to to talk with you on this level, but I watch you and you dance when you play. You can't sit still. Is that, I mean, you can't help it, can you? Um, I think that's part of what's fun about playing. I mean, I come from drums, you know? Right. And I think I'm trying to replace some of that, that missing uh, limb involvement. Sure. <laughs> when I play bass. Because really, not now you're down to two things. You were you were at four things, and now you're down to two <laughs> things, right? I totally get. It. I got my set right back here, man, and I'm it's collecting dying. a little I'm dying. dust. I'm dying because I don't have a set. And oh no! I mean, I do, but it's in storage, and I have no place to set it up. And uh, you know, I dream of of having my my kit set up somewhere. Uh, I saw you I'm get on. It. I saw you get on Gad's drum set. Uh, uh, what was that, a month ago or so? You could play? I wasn't even playing. I was just listening to 
listening and feeling my way around it. Somebody happened to be recording. I didn't even know. But man, that made me even more hungry to, to do this. And I got to say that the experience of sitting at his kit, even though, he, you know, even though he, it was like a, I probably orgasmed in about one second because it had been so long. <laughs> but uh, but that the feeling of it was overwhelming because because the way Steve sets up his drums is so ergonomically wonderful that you sit down at his kit yeah. and everything's right where you want it to be and it's so conveniently located and and you know the action of of the kick pedal and all that all the details are just like really fine tuned and if I ever do get my kit up and it you know and it pleases him enough i'm going to beg him to set my my drums up for me well, in just the, the way that he knows how to do it he's the master i it, mean you know god it would be it makes playing so much more fun and just like you know and and it's it's a faster it's a faster uh, journey from your brain to the notes coming back at you the way you want to want to hear those notes and the placement of them you know right well, so like, he he would know he he is the he's, there's only one Steve Gad. Yeah, I love watching him. I love watching him in like either his band or a band that's that's a sort of a groove oriented band, which most bands are, I guess. If if they have a drummer, hmm. um, but the kind of music that that he that he chooses to play, I, you know, there's nothing like playing a shuffle with Steve Gad. I'll right. just say that, and to watch him do that with with any other band is the most thrilling thing in the world because he's got this reserve and he simmers for, for, you know, an untold amount of time that tries your patience basically. But when it's time for him to explode, it's like the greatest thing you ever saw, like a pressure cooker, just the lid flying off. And it's just like, wow, that was worth waiting for, you know, because he, he doesn't give it to you for a long time, you know, and then when he decides to just let let go, it's like, Wah! it's just like the greatest thing in the world to see. You've played with every great drummer on the planet. I'm going to ask the them. most unfair question ever, and you can weed around this one a little bit, but do you have a favorite that you've played with that you you really lock with? Well, there's a lot of guys that I can lock with really well, and Sean is one of them you mm -hmm. mentioned. You know, and I'm sure that like Steve Ferroni, Steve Gadd, you know, uh, and everybody's got a totally different feel and approach. But some guys are easier easier to sort of predict the next note than other guys have been, you know. And like even guys like Gary Novak, um, you know, just, God, there's so many. You got Charlie Drayton. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, George. Steve Jordan, you know, guys who, you know, even after a while, you, even if it didn't start out great, you, you sort of learn the language and, and that becomes like a thing, you know? You seem to have fun in everything you do. That seems to be like the most important thing for you. Is that true? I'm pretty serious about it, actually. I'm pretty serious about the fun. Like when you, the last time you saw me play was probably Love Rocks. It was, yeah. And I don't know if it seemed like I was having fun or not, but totally. But man, I had been working on that thing for like four months, right? 
And by the time you saw me or anybody saw me involved with the playing part of it, all the work was finished. And at that point, I was having dessert. So I was really, really digging what was happening a lot. Explain to our listeners what Love Rocks is and what you had to do as a musical director for that. Well, Love Rocks is a is a concert that happens yearly in New York City, and it's to raise money for a really great organization called God's Love We Deliver. And who they are, who and what they are is a is a couple of is a few people who have organized um, feeding um, feeding patients that are sort of locked in their homes and can't really. F- you know, get food for themselves because they're too sick. And it started in in the AIDS epidemic in 85, basically. And it's not a religious thing. It's it's called God's Love We Deliver, but it was named by a a priest who saw this one woman bringing bringing, um, this one woman who knew a a guy who had contracted AIDS. And she went to his, his apartment and brought a big bag of groceries and came back like a week later and it was still sitting there because he just couldn't get it together to, to cook the food for himself because he was too weak. Right. And a priest saw her bringing cooked food over to this guy's house and said something to the effect of, you're delivering God's love or something. That was his, right. his way. That's how he saw it. So mm-hmm. that kind of stuck with her. And she began this organization, and now they're up to feeding 10,000 people a day. Have no idea how they do this. They have, they have all these volunteers. And when, when Love Rocks first came together five years ago, it was organized by a man uh, named Greg Williamson, who's a, who's a great, greatly successful real estate broker in New York City. But he and his wife, when they got married, they decided they wanted to find a charity between the two of them that would be a sort of their charity. And they went down the list of all the charities they ever heard of. And they arrived at this God's love. We deliver thing. And he's a music fanatic. He's really passionate about music. And he decided he would start doing concerts a la the George Harrison, the thing that George Harrison did the very first thing of a million years ago with Bangladesh and get a big concert together of hopefully named people that will raise, you know, awareness and money for this, to feed people. And he did, and he called it Love Rocks, New York City. So what it is, it's like multi-artists. We we have like a, up to 20 to 30 artists, and it's 20 to 35 pieces of music every year. Let me say 25 to 35. Ooh. And, you know, and what we do is we have a great house band of 19 unbelievable musicians. And Steve Gadd is one of them. You mentioned, you also mentioned Sean Pelton, those two guys. So it's like a big, it's like a big festival up there on the stage. And it's really like a four hour festival, you know, a festival in four hours of all kinds of different artists playing their solo stuff and hopefully playing with another artist. And we dovetail artists together, you know, in order to segue or bring on a new artist, we'll, we'll, we'll have an artist join it, an artist who's just done one of their tunes, and then they'll come together on like a cover song or maybe somebody, or maybe one of the, you know, one of their own songs. And then throughout the night, it kind of moves well. We, you know, we spend a lot of time sequencing as you would like a, when you're making a record, say, mm-hmm. to try to see how it all like can, can have a nice arc and not be too 
tedious because four hours is a long time, you know. So that's the that's the big work part of it. But then once the music starts playing, then it's just nothing but a blast. So, so if you see me looking like I'm having fun, you're right. You're responsible for hiring the musicians, the backing band, for getting the charts together, the arrangements, or maybe you hire an arranger to... Um, Hire do you a do most of- I hire a, a guy to, to actually write the charts to you know. Okay. I work on the arrangement and then he makes it look like something. Right. Do you actually suggest the the stars like Bon Jovi, uh, Gary Clark Jr. Is that is that or is that like by committee? It's very much by committee because the the other producers are Nicole Rector and and John Barbados. So he's very passionate about music too. He has a record label, as you, you might not know, or you might no, know. No, I didn't. And so he's really, you know, he kind of he's very responsible for sort of bringing to the public um, Gary Clark Jr., for example. You know, he wow. has an eye for for talent. And this year, he he introduced a new guy. Um, God, now I gotta I gotta remember his name. <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll insert old. it later. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I can't believe I can't think of his name right now, but it's a blur, the whole thing. Anyway, it was great. It was an incredible concert, and I was lucky enough to fly out. You had hired my brother, Ricky, whom we mentioned earlier, who's an incredible keyboard player. He just happens to be my stupid brother, whom I love very much. And I'm like, you're doing this concert? Guess what, big bro? I'm flying out. Um, And, Will, you took good care of me. I, I was able to sit and watch this whole thing go on. And yeah, you you uh, you were having a ball, and it was fun to watch you interact with everybody, with the drummers, with with everyone else. Your attitude throughout the the years that I've known you is so infectious, and I think people around you understand that you're there for fun. You're you're serious about the music, but you're serious about the fun. And the thing that I noticed about you that I want to bring up is that I was sitting backstage with Leo Sidron, whom you know, and we had, you had just finished the concert. So we were coming up just to gather our things from the dressing room. You were the last person I expected to see. I thought, you know, maybe you could have been out hobnobbing and being with the press and, and doing all those things. No, where was Will? He was up in that dressing room hanging out, with me, my brother, the musicians. Is that just who you are? Is that, you just like that kind of a hang more so than going for all that glory? I was exhausted. Fair <laughs> I enough. I couldn't wait for you guys to leave so I could fall asleep on the couch. No, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what are I you doing in my as- dressing room? Get up. I was high as a kite, of course, yeah. and exhilarated and exasperated and, you know, all the things that you would be after four months of working on a thing that just ended one minute ago. And, uh, you know, I was, I mean, to me, that's the hang. The cats are the hang, you know? Right. So, you know, I love all the, the glitz and the glamour and all that stuff, but, you know, I, I just love having a real conversation in a much more private sort of environment, you know, then I hate parties because of that. Cause you always end up, if you're lucky to talking to one person the whole time in a corner. Right. Cause you can't address like, even if it's party for you and it's all the pe- the best people in your life that you love so much, you're never going to hang with them that night at, at that party. That's for you. You're going to see one or two people. Right. 
And if you're lucky, you'll have a meaningful moment with somebody, you know. I just thought that was fascinating, the choice that you made to come upstairs. And I get it. You were done. You were tired. But it was it was so cool to see you with your bros in the band hanging out at set, you know, after that huge event. I thought that was remarkable. I've been thinking about those those bros and those sisters ever since that night. Oh man, it was I so. I want to write everybody and tell them how much I love them and how much I, you know, you know, appreciate everything that they did for the concert because you know everybody really dug in deep. You know, let's switch gears a little bit here. We have to talk about late night and, and your thirty-three year career of being. Is it two different names for the band? Because I'm going to screw this up. CBS yeah. Orchestra and the World's Most Dangerous Band. Right. It was it was nicknamed the World's Most Dangerous Band by Dave back in the NBC days, and I believe, you know, <laughs> as silly as this sounds, I think that became intellectual property of NBC. Oh wow! Really. In fact, we did an album in between the two shows uh, where it probably probably would have served Paul Schaefer very well to have called it Paul Schaefer and the World's Most Dangerous Band. Right. But even to make an album, he wasn't able to use that name. So we called it something like The Party Band or something. The Party Boys of Rock and Roll or some ridiculous. Oh, my God. You didn't get clearance yeah. for the name of your own band. That, that's about that's about right. That's corporate for you. And then in, in, in just as spontaneous of a moment, when we got over to CBS, Dave shouted over something like the CBS Orchestra, and then, and then that stuck forever. Huh. You spent most of your adult life in that building. Did you ever fathom that that gig would last that long? I'm still waiting to enter my adult life, by the way. <laughs> Between you and me. Are you still in adolescence, are you? No. Mm, yes. yes that's an, in fact, that's where I am in France. I'm in adolescent, France. <laughs> Very beautiful area. Adolescent. Um, mm. I just took a swim in the pool today. You did. And uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to be Mr., you know, get some... Get some real great exercise. And then, and then I'm going back and forth. My wife, Sandrine, is going back and forth at about four times the speed. Mm-hmm. And I'm realizing she's a dolphin and I'm a manatee. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Where, where were we? How did you get the Letterman gig? The Letterman gig. We're going to take a little break from the interview right now because I want to tell you about a couple of really cool things. First of all, we're having so much fun with our weekly one-minute funk jams called Funk Friday. We've had so many world-class musicians on Funk Friday, including members of the Steve Miller Band, Fleetwood Mac, Daryl Hall and John Oates, Earth, Wind & Fire, just to name a few. You can check that out on all of our social media, but you can also see it on our YouTube channel. I also want to take this opportunity to thank all of our members who have supported us on Patreon. Don't know what Patreon is? Go to www.patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast and there you'll get all sorts of information on how you can financially help us produce this podcast there are all kinds of incentives listed there on the website and there are many different levels on how you can become involved we could not put on this podcast without our patrons 
All right, let's get back to the interview. How did you get the Letterman gig? The Letterman gig came about because I was really good friends with Schaefer, Paul Schaefer. We've yep. been really good friends since the day we met on a session that was a that was a, uh, a session for a guy named Paul Jabara that he was a, arranging for that he ended up co-writing It's Raining Men with, and Paul Jabara later died of AIDS. But for some reason, I think that Paul Jabara had connected with Barry Manilow's uh, producer, Ron Dante, who was producing this session. And Ron had hired me and maybe another couple of guys that were regulars on the Barry Manilow scene. I think maybe Jimmy Young was playing drums. He's the guy that played on Mandy with me and stuff. Mm. But so there's this guy I'd never seen before on piano who had arranged the music. His name was Paul Schaefer and he was a Canadian guy and he was very sweet and really respectful. And he already knew about me and he treated me like I was king shit, you know. <laughs> you which are king was, shit. Which actually, that definitely, uh, you know, softened things up, you know, when a guy's like fawning over you, you know, and you're like, oh, wait, you are, you know about this, you know about, this? oh, he knew yeah. about everything. He knew everything because he'd been studying record credits and stuff. Anyway, we got along like gangbusters and we've been great friends ever since. So we had this band. I was in a band, as they say, that was big in Japan. And it was Hiram Bullock, Steve Jordan, Clifford Carter, and myself. We were called the 24th Street Band. Okay. And right as we were disbanding, um, Schaefer, who had become friends with us all and knew what kind of music we were all into, um, was getting a call from from Letterman to to be the musical director on his new upcoming pilot, which ended up being 33 and a third years of a pilot. So Shafe said, you know, he called me and and Jordan and Hiram, and said, uh, you know, I got this com this comedy talk show pilot to do, and I'm I'm thinking of using the music of James Brown you know, Motown, the Stones and Beatles as the music. Um, you know, instead of going like the Doc Severinsen route, doing, you know, whatever, whatever those guys were doing, this is what I'm thinking of as doing instrumental versions of for the music as at the show. Um, I said, man, that sounds like fun. When do we start? And he, he said, next week. Whoa. I said, man, let's, let's get, why don't we sit down and learn something, you know? And, you know, so we got together like every night for a few nights until it was time to, to do the first taping. And uh, the funny, the way I felt about it was like, first of all, 13 weeks of solid work was like unheard of. Yeah. I couldn't believe that was coming. I called my drug dealer. I was a, I was a drug addict at the time. <laughs> I've been to rehab 36 years ago. Um, and I'm very public about it. Um. I called him up and I said, just bring a truck, unload everything into my apartment. <laughs> I got all this money coming in. Oh, man. Anyway. Danger. Danger. Dang really bad. Really dangerous. Anyway, I was excited about 13 weeks of solid work, and I couldn't believe it was it was something I, that I could actually look forward to, 13 weeks of for sure work. And then the next thing you know, it got renewed. 
you know, we got another contract, another 13 weeks must be going pretty good. And the next thing you know, a three-year contract came in. Whoa, this is unbelievable. You know, that's when you knew it was a hit show and uh, that things were going to be going pretty well for a while. I couldn't believe it because I, because, you know, it was really experimental. Dave was doing a lot of really experimental knucklehead stuff that he couldn't, he couldn't get the rights to certain artists and stuff because Johnny Carson was a, you know, was kind of like in control of things. A little and, politics uh, in late night, maybe? Huh? A little politics in late night? Big time politics. I mean, Carson loved him, but he didn't, he didn't, he wanted to support him without being competed with by, by Dave. Mm. You know? Interesting. So he had a, a few stipulations. You can't use this artist. You can't, Use this person, you know, a certain distance. It's like a club owner saying you can't you can't play First Avenue if you're going to play, you know, so and so. Got it. Yeah. Two nights later, you know. Right. Anyway, so Dave uh, got really creative with the writers and came up with all this wild knucklehead stuff, you know, like Velcro suits and diving into a vat of Alka Seltzer, <laughs> just all this stuff, you know. And, Hiring people like Larry Bud Melman to be a character on the show, you know, and just off the wall things that were happening. And you had a front row seat. And it was, yeah. And you didn't know what was happening until you started realizing that, wait a minute, big sponsors are coming in, you know, but here comes Budweiser and stuff, you know. And that's when like the three year contract started to happen. Right. And then it was a show and it was a hit and, and kept going and going 33 years later. You played with a lot of your heroes on that show, didn't you? A lot, yeah. One of the Somebody coolest is- things for me was because I told you you're one of my heroes is that I got to do something somewhat similar by playing on the Donnie and Marie show. And one of my favorite things about that was getting to play with people like uh, Stevie Wonder, and and the different people that would come on and use the house wow. band, I, it blew my mind. Kenny Rogers, uh, so, uh, Glenn Campbell, and your wow. list is Huge. so extensive. Did you have a favorite hero that came on and and you got to play with? Um, looking back, I think you know it never got any better than James Brown. <sighs> You know, and that was really early, too. That was like within the first few months of the show. And we couldn't believe it. You know, we couldn't believe that that he was grooving as hard as he was on our band, first of all. Mm. And he and after that, you know, every time he came on, he gave, you know, you've probably heard stories about what a control freak James Brown was, you know. Sure. Dangling, a, you know, t- dangling a little paycheck in front of guys just to keep them on the road. Meanwhile, they're sp- oh, yeah. basically starving, but... You know, he would just give them just enough to stay on the road, that kind of stuff. And, you know, he would fine them if they made a mistake and all that stuff. Do the flashing. That's where Prince caught all that stuff. So I know it indirectly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's true. It's in in all these movies about James Brown and stuff. But rather than, you know, rather than having that attitude toward us, he right away recognized that Paul Schaefer was such a great band leader that he trusted Paul to the point of like, next time he came on the show, he let Paul do everything, pick the songs, whatever. 
Wow. You know, he gave up the control completely because hmm. he trust after that first experience, he loved it so much that he felt really confident. Jay. 33 years. Did you ever feel, I mean, and this is a crazy question, but did you ever feel stifled? Did you, did you feel not held back? I don't think that's the right terminology, but you couldn't go on these world tours. Did that ever bother you or was it, did you, were you thinking your lucky stars that you had 33 years on this gig? Well, my favorite thing, I never really romanticized about living on a bus or anything like that. But my favorite thing is, is sessions. Right. I what love, you had, you've done before and during and after your stint with Letterman, right? But Yes, but during, it took a very patient producer to keep hiring you if you had to leave in the middle of the day for four hours to go do a thing. Right. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. the session thing... You know, like the the long all all day record session thing started to go away for me. Yeah. Because of so I had to give up that because I didn't have the freedom to to say yeah I can be there all day. You know. I mean, I, you know, there were there were there were other types of sessions that I could do, like a recent Alicia Keys album right before the Letterman show ended. We had we had these. The call was like. <laughs> It was 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. Oh. <clears throat> so those oh. I could take. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. She would walk in at 11, by the way. Oh, my God. I don't know what we were supposed to be doing for those first five hours, but we were there hanging. Getting paid to sit there and watch television. I mean, we knew she wasn't coming. She had kids. Yeah, of course. You know? Once she put them to bed, she would show up. Hmm. Explain to me how it feels that in your transition to not doing the show, was it four days a week? You, yeah. You're done with the show now. Was that a, is that an easy transition for you to not do um, that show? It was actually because I, I had, I did enough, I think. <laughs> did you? <laughs> did you, re <laughs> you were done. After 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 the first thirty years, it becomes like, yeah, I feel like I know what's going to happen when I get there. You know, uh -huh. <laughs> you start to you start to detect a pattern, right? And that's not that's not always good. Mm. I mean, for me, man, when I first went to New York, it was to join a band, a band called Dreams that had the Brecker Brothers and Billy Cobham and and stuff, and that band started to to fold when Billy left, Billy Cobham left to go do Mahavish New Orchestra. Right. You know, because he was basically the guy who drove the bus, you know, as far as like the band was a very improvisational band and on, on shows, you know, we were counting on him to really shift the gears from, from moment to moment musically. It's because he was so powerful, so good at it. Then when he left, we never found a replacement. So we kind of, we kind of fizzled away. And me being from having moved up there from Miami, I thought I was going to go back to Miami. Oh. And I had just become aware of like what a studio musician was all about because I, I didn't really know much about that when I first came to New York. 
but I'd seen a lot of the guys in the band going to sessions and I visited some sessions with them and I thought, man, that would be the ideal thing to do. Because you walk in a room and you're walk in a room with a fresh bunch of musicians, play a piece of music you've never played before and may never have to look at again ever, leave and go to the next room where that's going to happen all over again, maybe several times a day. Right. To me, that was like the ultimate gig you could ever want to do. You never got bored. But I, exactly. But I saw how sewn up the whole thing was. And I thought, well, that's not going to be me ever, obviously. So I'm just going to go back to Miami and just kind of, you know, be, I'll be thought of as being a cool guy. Cause I will have played with this band dreams yeah. in New York city. So yeah, there's my big moment and that's it. Right. But I, there was a couple of guys in dreams that said, Oh no, you're not moving back to Miami. You're going to stay here. And we're going to get you work. Whoa. And next thing I knew they were recommending me for, for sessions when a guy couldn't make it. And that was it. I just started like, that was my total foot in the door. So I got really, really lucky because of those people having their own little, their own studio careers, you know. And you did that from the time you got there through your entire career, including now. Decades, yeah. Right. It's my favorite thing, still. How many records do you think you've played on? I'm sure at least a couple of thousand albums, you know, so far. It's so funny because I've known you so long, and I don't even know which records you played on. And I'll I'll listen to, for example, I'm out by my pool, and I'll listen to a Shocker record, and I'm like, who played bass on that? And then I'll look it up, and I go, no, it's Uncle Will. And then I'll call you and go, dude, I had no idea. It's pretty fun to, to hear uh, all the records you've been a part of. And you know what's so cool about that, too, Unc, is that you cross all genres and you do it with integrity and uh, uh, authenticity to that particular genre is there a trick to that yeah it's the same trick that you use you had musical parents you grew up listening you, you know what a what a groove feels like in your body and a groove is a groove is a groove and, and by that I mean that's the thing that sort of I connect with with all genres of music that I, all the ones that I like are all groove based. And that includes jazz, country, gospel, blues, rock and roll, and everything you can think of, funk, you know. And I'm sure that you can slide in and out of all those genres just as easily because you came up and we, we have jazz backgrounds. And I think that that's really, really, uh, there's something about that, that that informs you you know whether you you think of yourself as a student or not. You're you're, it's it's in it's in your household. So you're hearing all this this stuff, and you're and you're learning about like in your very body what feels good. So you know, so you can you know when something feels good or not because you've learned, you know, unconsciously what that feeling is. So you can always have a, a guide inside of you that, that lets you know, is this grooving or not? Right. You know, and you and I are lucky because you primarily, I, I don't know how you consider yourself, but I think of you as a, as a master bass player. You know, you may think of, you know, I mean, I know that you play a lot of other instruments, you know, very proficiently. I've seen you 
wail on everything. And I love your drumming, by the way. <laughs> Thank and you. I, I'm, and I'm, I mentioned I'm, I'm something saving to this you. clip right here, and I'll play it over and over when I'm upset. I, I mentioned something to you about. You know something that you wouldn't admit to, but the you're playing on on the latest Peterson Brothers album that you guys yeah. did. Um, there's something that very few people have, and that is the you have this ability to make it feel really good without pounding the drums. You're mm. playing mostly drums on that record, right? Oh, that's guitar, guitar you're, yeah. You're leaving the the bass up to to Willard. Of course, my and big brother. all the keyboards up to, to Ricky. Oh, yeah. So that leaves you like, well, what's left for me? Okay. <laughs> the utility man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and man, you, t you, took it, you took it all the way home. It was oh, great. Th I love the way you, I love the way you don't hit hard, and, which allows the instrument to really, you know, the sound of the instrument to really be heard instead of just, just, just the thwack. I mean, you hear the drums, which right. is really cool. Well, That's you, rare. Man. I don't. You, I you don't hear that much. I wasn't expecting that. Thank no. you so much. Well, hey, I want to switch gears on you a little bit because I want to be good to you to you in your time, and I, I want to talk to some about something that is so important to me, and I know so important to you, and you've been very vocal about this. Talk to me about the importance of your sobriety. Um, I, I'm alive. That's a good thing, and that's a good that's, that's a good a good, good way to start each day, right? By being alive, yeah, yeah. Um, I got really carried away with uh, with uh, with a dual addiction to drinking and and cocaine. They got really uh, they were so available, and um, I think I got really into the feeling of. Of uh, and it, and it was debilitating too. I mean, you couldn't function, so you really had to become like a uh, you know you really had to 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 pick your moments when you were going to do this. You know, you that couldn't becomes, like that becomes an art form in itself, a bad it, art it form. Is. But. It is. It is. You you know it's 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 uh you know you can't say, okay, I'm going to get really drunk and really high and, and be a great anything, musician, singer, player, anything, person, friend, mm. you know, member of a relationship, member of a family. All you're going to be is a pain in the ass, you know, but you're going to think you're really happening until it gets to the point where you, you start looking around your, your life and, you're, and you find yourself like, this is what happened to me. I found myself uh, in a situation where my relationships were falling apart with my friends and my, you know, person I was living with. She was something, somebody I didn't even really want to be with, you know. And um, my work was going away because I was blowing it. I was not showing up for gigs. And this is funny because 33 years later, uh, 36 years later, there are still people that won't call me for work because they they have decided that I'm that guy that won't show up. I know how convenient to pigeonhole somebody, but we're all guilty of doing that. Mm -hmm. But there are contractors who still, no, not that guy. Wow, has taken a chance. He may not show up, you know. 
and it sort of got to me after a while. I th- it, things got really tedious and complicated to keep it all going at once. The juggle of having, you know, having to get this substance and that substance and keep it all going. And my work was going away and my relationships were going away. And I said, finally, I just looked in the mirror and I said, are you happy doing this? And I could not come up. I couldn't even say yes to my, I couldn't even fool myself for five seconds. So that's where, you know, that's when it all ended. I finally was able to, because, you know, your friends and people who care about you just become a pain in the butt for you. You don't want to hear from them because they're saying, you know, you know what you're doing to yourself? Oh, yeah, right. Sure. Yeah, right. Never mind. Screw you. You know, meanwhile, the Jones is going, okay, let's go. Let's get wasted. And uh, the Jones won until until I couldn't, until I finally asked myself that question, are you happy? And I, and finally I said, okay, this is, this is not working, you know. Do you want to rehab then? Yeah. Went in for five weeks. Okay. Um, greatest thing I could have done. I was lucky to get in. Because it was all very spontaneous. I called them up and I said, look, do you have any room for me? And they said, yeah, come in. It's almost like they were waiting for me. Wow. Yes, come in, Will. We've been expecting of you. Yes. Mm. Your bed is made. Your your food will be served. I can tell you you, uh, from me looking at you, because as you know, people are watching. And I watched you with my own struggle with alcohol and I saw you as an inspiration and someone who I looked up to in, in, in sobriety. And I looked at you because I went, here's a guy who's a bass player. He's doing what I want to do. He's successful. He has friends. And most of all, he has respect. And that's how we started this show. And that's, that word has come up several times now. And that is what, I wanted. So on behalf of so many different people who have looked up to you and watched your journey, thanks for, for, for doing that. I'm glad you're alive and wake up every day. And uh, we're very grateful for your inspiration on that one. Thanks, Unc. Hey, it's the least I could do. <laughs> hey, but because me, uh, this... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that the funny thing is, man, you know, and, and the music suffered a lot because of all that stuff too. Really? I got to a point where as a bassist, you can almost get away with playing just roots and downbeats all the time. Yeah. And there were a lot of sessions where I would just do that because I didn't want to be singled out by the producer. Oh, I was really paranoid. Oh, and there would be gigs where I would just be really like, you know, really just kind of playing and couldn't wait to get off the stage so I could go back and get high, you know, sort of hiding and playing it safe and whatever. And (laughs) strange thing happened after I got out of rehab and I came back and I did, I remember I was doing a gig at the blue note with somebody. And, you know, when you stop getting high and you get back into music it's all of a sudden, it's like really colorful. It's like everyone goes from black and white to just technicolor, right? Yeah. Because it's so much more, you're so much freer. And the music is just so magical. And, and it, music is magical, you know? And um, 
if you don't have all that self-conscious stuff going on, you can really let go of yourself and really get in the zone of playing and have a great time. And I become really animated after that happened. And I got no, really- No, wait a minute. Of- you? Hold on. <laughs> well, <laughs> no. I, got, I, got so, I started getting, getting so into it. I remember I got off the stage at the Blue Note really soon after I got out of rehab and a guy came over to me and said, hey man, you look like you're really fucked up. You got any more of that stuff? What's like, okay, here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Oh, man. The only reason I'm allowed to look like I'm having this much fun is because I finally am, you know, because I don't have any of that stuff. So there is happiness on the other side of that abuse. Tremendous happiness. Way Mm -hmm. happiness. Way much happier. And you're happy to this day. So far, so good. (laughs) Yeah. Let's switch gears to what this program is all about. This is called Music on the Run. I'm a runner. That's how I cope with stress, being on the road, all that kind of thing. That's how I stay healthy. Your energy level has always been so incredible. Uh, Is it just being Will Lee? Is that enough of a workout for you? You just wake up and you're you're on 11 and and that gets your heart rate up enough? Or do you actually like... Like you said, you like to go swimming. I know you're a diver. How do you, what's your coping mechanism now? Um, I don't know, man. I've never been bored, first of all, ever. Um, I'm kind of excited to do anything, even this, <laughs> even this interview. <laughs> you liar. Uh, you lie. <laughs> um, you know, if I'm not doing sessions, I'm, I have like a, about 200 songs that are waiting to be finished. Oh, yeah. So as soon as I can get, you know, I'll, a few duties out of the way, I, I'll be free to go back in and start, you know, figuring out how to, how to uh, you know, finish some songs. And I, a, f- a few things about that. Songwriting is... Uh, you know, nobody's throwing me any money to do, to do this, and there's hardly any money in songwriting anymore. So it's it's even more of like a level playing field between people now. And it's 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 kind of freeing in a way to 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 know that you're doing this for the for the real reason, and that's to really express yourself. And I'm hoping that you and me and anybody else that we know that does make music is able to. How do I put this? Um, you know, what's the point of music? What's music for? It's not just for you to get your rocks off. You you know, that's a good start because that'll keep you off the street and keep you from doing harm to others, say, and it's a good pacifier or whatever. And it's a great, it's great fun. But can we use music to, to better this world, this really messed up world that we have right now, you know? This world that needs so much healing, there's so much anger out there, and there's so much prejudice, and there's so much all negative garbage going on. How can we get our music to make a dent, make even a ripple in that in that crazy uh, trajectory that's going on? You know. Mm. So that's kind of what I'm hoping that I can sort of 
you know, arrive at with, with lyrics, with anything, with the groove itself, you know, with the melody, with something that makes somebody feel other than anger or other than prejudice or other than hate. Music has the ability to, to do that and, and to heal. And if we can play a small part of healing on this planet, and that is, I think, every artist's job, that's really what we're supposed to be doing. If we can do that, then I think we've done our job. I think so. As you look back at everything you've done in your career, what are you, what are you most proud of? Um, uh, I think the, the thing that makes me most proud is things that I've been able to arrive at due to teamwork. Hmm. Due to, it's never been about me, the, the things that make me the happiest. It's always been about me and a combination with great, say, engineers and producers and, and fellow musicians and, and, and artists. You know, I love, you know, I, I'm not somebody that looks back very much. All my gold records and all that stuff are at a museum in, in Nashville at the Musicians Hall of Fame, most of them. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> and um, thank you. I'm a proud inductee in 2014. That's for class. I did read that. Um, so, but when I do get a glimpse back, you know, because people will, will say, hey, man, check this out. If, it's a lot of stuff I forgot about, you know, so. I bet. There's a funny, there's a, there's a really sweet thing on Facebook called the, the Will Lee Appreciation Group. Yeah, I'm a member. This, this Japanese girl named Yasuko Hori, who's a great fan. And um, people will, will just post stuff. And it's like, wow, that thing happened? Oh, yeah, Leo Sayer, sure. Oh, Waylon Jennings on, you know, you know, you just kind of go back and some of it's good, some of it's not great. I mean, it's coming from me. I mean, my part of it's not always great, but there are certain things like some of those CTI records that, that uh, you know, that have like a really good bass sound on them and stuff. And I was like, wow, I want to keep getting back to that. You know, that's pretty <laughs> nice. But then again, I don't have Rudy Van Gelder engineering for me. Um, yeah. So <laughs> we do what we can. Right. You know, that's another one of those teamwork things. Like the writing was great, the rearranging, and the and the band was hired that was hired was great, and Rudy was great, or whatever engineer was able to get a wonderful sound on you. You know, and uh, it's uh, you know a lot of what we're doing these days is 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 sitting it in by ourselves at home with a computer and trying to figure out software. Like I feel like a I feel like a simian who's just been introduced to a circuit board. <laughs> what is that? You know, like, what am I going to do with that? That's not a banana. Yeah. You know, where's my banana? They hit it. So, the you know, banana. So, right. <laughs> but I've been trying to uh, overcome some of that and, and learn about, you know, the plugins and all the fun stuff that, that that's available out there, yeah. and still, it's it's not it's not uh, a studer, it's not twenty four track, you know, two inch. Still, the game has changed quite a bit. I mean, there's less of that and more of what you're talking about with 
sitting in that room and overdubbing and sending it out. And I missed the interaction, but I guess we have to embrace whatever it is. And, you know, as we talk about Funk Friday, that has actually been some, one of the things that has kept me sane during this whole pandemic is reaching out to people like you and Randy Brecker and Dean Brown and Ricky Peterson and all these guys to have a moment, even with each other on a text string going, you know, thank you for taking the time out and bringing some well-needed love and light to this terrible time in human history. And that's really what we were doing. And I think every time you pick up a bass, you are giving love and light uh, to the human condition. And, uh, well, I can't thank you enough for coming on Music on the Run. Where oh, can man. we uh, find you playing? I know you're getting back in with the Fab Four. Well, a little bit. We're doing some, uh, we're doing, we have a New York public gig that's been announced, and that's November 6th at the Beacon. Oh, great. Uh, I'm going to do a small mini tour of the Northeast with a group called Toxic Monkey. And, oh. um, <laughs> Perfect. In, in, in December, and that's going to, that's Steve Luke at there and Bill oh. Evans and Keith Carlock and uh, Steve uh, Weingarten and myself. Nobody good. Yeah, that's going to be fun. We do it. We have a great time with that. And uh, there's another band that I have called Band of Other Brothers, Boob, <laughs> who are, of course, looking to tour in uh, maybe April for a little minute. We just made a new record, a new album. Who's in that? That's um, Jeff Babco and Jeff Coffin, great yep. saxophone player. Yep. Steve Carlock again. And okay. Near Felder on guitar and myself. Wow. We have a new album coming out called Look Up. I hope you're singing. Uh, yeah, a little bit of oh, on there. Yeah. You're, you're such a great singer, man. I don't know Most if a lot of people know that, but you are an incredible singer. I've, I've had my moments here and yes, there. Yes, you have. A couple of punch-ins help. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Auto where can tune, we, find, where and, can we uh, find these dates? Will is it willlee.com? Uh, you know, let me see. I'm I'm probably better at putting it out there on Instagram and uh, okay under Uncle Will Lee or Will Lee Baseboy on Twitter or Facebook. Will Lee, cool official official Will Lee. Thank you, my Uncle Will, Will Lee, Lee for anyway. for coming on the show, man. I love you and. And uh, of course, you know O'Reilly. I think of you and and appreciate all you've done for all of us uh, bass players, paving the way and showing us how it's done with uh, uh, respect and uh, integrity. And you too, man. I can't wait to to hear the next thing that I hear. Get to hear you play on. Can you play me a note on that whirly back there? That's all you get. That's a jazz chord, by the way. That's my favorite note in the world. <laughs> I love right. the way you pickle the plastics, man. That's right. That's it for episode 40. What are we, 43 did I say? Let me look back you here. Episode say. 43 with Uncle Will Lee. Thank you so much. Everybody, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Music on the Run was hosted by yours truly, St. Paul Peterson. Edited and produced by my buddy, Davide Razo. Artist relations by Owen Sartori. Video editing by Tanner Montague. And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember, it's all about teamwork. <laughs>